Well, this morning we're beginning a brand new journey called A Peck of Salt. And uh, this title comes from uh, a quote that was uh, given years and years ago by a guy by the name of Miguel de Cervantes. Apparently that's his name. And he said this remarkable thing. He said, a man must eat a peck of salt with his friend before he knows him. What? A man must eat a peck of salt with a friend before he truly knows him. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. What the heck is a peck? Great question. A peck is actually just a measure. Uh, it's, it's like a liter or like a gallon. It's a, in, in fact, it's in the Bible. If you've got a very old translation of the Bible, many of you all know the verse from Matthew 5.15. It says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Or some translations would say under a bushel. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. But if you've got an old-fashioned Bible, like an old amplified classic edition, it would say this, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. So a peck is simply an old-fashioned measurement of volume. In fact, it measures about 8.1 liters. So if you took 8.1 liters of salt, that weighs about 10.1 kilograms. So here is our peck of salt. So if you've never felt a peck of salt, you can come and uh, experiment and you'll notice that that is the biggest salt cellar you might have ever seen in your life. And it's not even a true peck. That's only about eight kilograms of salt. We need another two kilograms to get to a true peck of salt. So now what this guy was saying is a man needs to share a peck of salt with someone before he really gets to know them. Now, what is he really trying to say? Well, let's, let's for the engineers and uh, auditors among you, let's think about it this way. Let's say, and you give me a little bit of license, that on your food there's about five grams of salt. That's a teaspoon. So some salt went into the cooking and maybe you put a little bit of salt on top. Let's say it's five grams per person. So you and your friend, five grams, five grams. Let's say that that's 10 grams of salt per meal. 10 grams of salt to get to 10 kilograms is going to be 1,000 meals. So basically what he's saying here is that it takes a thousand meals to really get to know someone. Now what's interesting is a thousand meals would probably be about three years worth of dinners, which is actually interestingly enough is what Jesus spent with his disciples. But the big idea is that genuine friendship requires time together around meals. Now why are we doing a journey called a peck of salt is because God has begun to speak to us as a church. In fact, a couple of prophetic words were given to us. One of the prophetic words came from Craig Clark. Many of you will remember when we had our birthday celebration. He's the one who gave us our peck of salt. And he said to us, God is wanting you as a church to eat a peck of salt together. What's God saying? God is saying he wants us to invest deeper into that sense of community and friendship among us. Stan and Heather Phipps, many of you will remember, they in fact lead that church in Glenridge and Durban where we're going next weekend. They came to us and they ministered last year and prophesied, God wants you to extend your dining room tables. What's God saying? Someone, a pastor visited here and he gave me some feedback and he said, this is such a friendly church, but no one invited me to a home group. I wonder, is the church more friendly than it is a church of friends? Understand the difference? God has been speaking to us, church, about deepening our sense of community and friendship. God is saying, I want you to eat a peck of salt 
together. And so hence this journey that we're going to be on, a pack of salt, the gospel of community. I want us to study, we're going to unpack what the Bible speaks about community, learning to think community. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. Jesus, of course, was the master of this. Jesus loved eating meals together. Maybe that's one of the reasons I love Jesus so much. Food played a a central role in his life. He loved eating with his disciples. And we're going to study some of those meal moments together. But before we get to that, what's the real problem? You see, at the heart of the problem, I believe is we live, we, right around the world, we live in a very me-centered age. It's all about me. It's an age of rights more than responsibilities. You know, people see people waving flags and marching on the streets declaring we have a responsibility. No, no, it's always this is our right. This is an age of entitlement. I deserve, I deserve this and I deserve this and I deserve the next thing. This is a consumer age which panders to all our wants and our needs. Anything you want, three clicks later, you can order it and it'll be delivered the next day. It's all about meeting all of our needs. It's an individualistic age where many of us don't even know our neighbors. We're living in our own walls with our security fences and it's me, my family. It's an age where the individual is more important than the community. Now, I know it's different because some cultures are better community-wise than others. And I know we've got a variety of cultures among us, but many of our cultures are actually very individualistic, where it's the individuals more important than the community. This age encourages an unhealthy sense of being self-absorbed. Do I hear an amen? (laughs) And into this, the gospel of the kingdom was proclaimed. And I want to remind us, I want us to catch. You see, many of us have heard a gospel. Jesus loves me. Jesus came to die for me. Jesus has set me free. And now Jesus is getting me to go to heaven. And it's once again all about me. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed was the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom is so radically different. In Luke chapter 9, as an example, verses 23 and 24, it says, Then Jesus, he, says, he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Was that preached to you when you responded to the gospel? Normally we just hear Jesus loves me and he died for me. Well, Jesus says to the disciples, no, actually, you're going to need to deny yourself and take up your cross if you want to be my disciple. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What? But whoever loses their life for me will save it. In other words, it's not all about you and getting all your stuff and meeting all your needs. In fact, that's how you lose your life. If you want to truly find this thing called life, then don't make it about you. Give it away. I want you to catch the heart that the kingdom is radically different to this age we live in. And church, we've got to be so careful that we don't get seduced into a gospel that just mirrors this humanistic, me-centered age that we live in. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not supposed to get intense today because the last three weeks have been quite intense, the justice of God. So this is a gentle message today. The gospel of the kingdom is about dying to self. The gospel of the kingdom is about putting Jesus first before ourselves. The gospel of the kingdom is about loving others, not just being self-absorbed. 
and believing that this is the kingdom road to life. This is where we'll find true life, eternal life and joy. So friends, for us to grow as a church into a greater communion of community of genuine friends and family, we need to go back to the gospel of the kingdom. And what we want to do over the next couple of weeks is recognize that this is a gospel of community more than it's a gospel of me. Let me explain what that means. I want you to think two things about Jesus as he, he died for us. Jesus went to the cross alone. Remember his disciples abandoned him. As the, the soldiers came and arrested Jesus, as all of his followers scattered him. He was arrested alone. Peter, his closest friend, denied him three times. I swear I've never seen this guy in my life. And on the cross, in those moments of agony, the hardest part of all, Jesus cries out in Mark 15, verses 34. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud, loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to catch the heart of the fact that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was alone. And friends, at the cross, we come to Jesus alone. Hear what I'm saying now. There is no such thing as being saved because your family's Christian. You can't become a Christian because your parents are Christians. You can't become a Christian because this is a Christian community or a Christian country. When we come to Christ for salvation, we come alone. Jesus, I've got to own my sin and confess my sin. It's not my parents who can get me saved. No, no, it's me. Jesus, I come before the cross with my sin and ask you to save me. But now here's the amazing thing. As much as Jesus died alone, when he rose again from the dead three days later, Jesus rose with a new body, and that body is called the church. Jesus rose from the dead, a spiritual body. He was now the head of his new resurrected body, and we are part of that body. I want you to understand, Jesus died alone, and yet he was raised again as a community. Jesus died as a me, but became a we when he rose from the dead. And what I want you to catch today, I want this to become revelation in our hearts, is coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us from a me-centered person to a we-centered person. In fact, the kids are starting their new series today in kids' ministry. And we're not calling it a peck of salt. We're calling it a me-to-we. Because that's what this is all about. And into the age we live in, I want us to catch the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually we die to this sense of individualistic, it's all about me. And as we step into Christ, resurrection, life of the Holy Spirit should translate us from me thinkers to we thinkers. We are now part of a body together. It's not about me, it's about us. And I'm connected to you and you connected to me like parts of our body together. We cannot act in isolation and think it doesn't affect one another. Jesus has resurrected us together into community. Does that make sense? And I want us to catch a hold of this over these next couple of weeks. Colossians 3, excuse me, verses 1 to 4. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Raised with Christ. 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, that's what happened when we get born again. Died to our old self, resurrected in Christ, in his body, from a me to a we. He died an individual and rose as the head of a community, his new body. Not a fleshly body, but a glorious spiritual body. And we are part of it. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Being born again by the power of Jesus translates us from an individual into a member of a body. So the big challenge of this, ch- this journey is it's got to start at an identity level. We'll never change our thinking and our behavior until we've had an identity shift. Just like I'm not a sinner, I'm a child of God now because of Jesus. So I'm no longer a me, I'm actually part of a we. We've got to change our thinking and recognize that at an identity level, we are now a covenant people in Christ. Amen. Amen. What does it mean? Well, it carries on in verse uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Sure. Are any of you suffering right now? Amazing. This is the word of God of what it means to be part of a covenant community. If one part suffers, everyone suffers with it. We've got people in hospital right now. Some of them are dying right now. Has it impacted you in any way? You see, the glorious picture of what it means to be a body is when one suffers, we carry it together. When one person is honored or celebrates or there's a breakthrough, we share in that together. As opposed to living our own isolated lives and we come together on a Sunday for a church service. No, 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 no. The picture we see in Scripture is that our lives are covenanted together and what affects you affects me. When you hurt, I hurt. When I celebrate, you celebrate. We join together in Christ. Now you are, what it says, one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. And if you don't believe me, just go and stub your baby toe at home. And you'll realize, you tiny insignificant little part of my body that apparently we don't even need our baby toes. You kick that little sucker against the door or something and you'll realize your whole body is suffering because the smallest, most insignificant little member of your body is suffering. So what does it mean to think covenantally? Well, it's easy. I was always taught. It simply means what's in your fridge is mine and what's in my fridge is yours. That's covenant thinking. When you marry, that's a covenant. We can't thrive if one of us in our marriage is not doing well, because if you're hurting, I hurt. And, and that's why we need to learn to break out of individualistic thinking and think covenant. Look, for example, at when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. This is huge when it comes to prayer. Now, most of us know it, but has the penny dropped? Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Matthew 6, 9 to 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father 
in heaven. How, how often do you pray that? Or is it, oh, Heavenly Father, you my Father, thank you that you my f- I find myself praying by default, my, me, and our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us. When you pray, are you praying as a us or are you praying as a me? Lord, please provide my family with this and help me to do this, Lord, and strengthen me, Lord, and I need this and my family needs this. Are you on bless the church? Amen. Give us. Give us our daily bread. You see, to think covenantally is not just thinking about me. It's thinking about us. We covenanted together. Give us our today, our daily bread. And forgive us, not just your sins. When we pray, Jesus taught us to pray, no, there's folk in your body. And this is our body, our local church. They need you to be praying for them. Lord, forgive them of their sins. As we, not me, also forgive our, not my, sins. And lead us, not me, not into temptation, but deliver us, not just me, from the evil one. Jesus, in his teaching, he was trying to catch them, not just how you should pray, but how you should pray includes us and not just me. Anyway, I hope that all makes sense. The problem so much about praying is just selfish. Some of our songs, I've been talking to the musos, Say, please, let's stop singing about I and me. We should be singing about us and we. Because, now you're very quiet. Sure. So it's supposed to be a gentle sermon today. Let me uh, find a story to tell you. This journey is a radical repentance in terms of the way we think about one another, the way we think about church and community. Why is this so important? Because we were created for God's glory. Our vision, church, our vision is Jesus. We want Jesus to be glorified. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is more glorified in us than in me. Does that make sense? Yes, Jesus wants to be glorified in your life, but he's more glorified in our lives than in any one person's life. And if we want to be true to our mission, this is a we mission. It's not a me or you mission. In fact, Jesus said it like this in John 13, 34 and 35. New commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the us factor. Jesus being revealed in us more than an individual that truly God is glorified. will bring much more glory to Jesus as a community than as, and then as individuals. Part of our salvation journey is being delivered from self-absorbed, self-centered, selfish thinking and learning to think covenant community. Okay, so let's get practical. One of the best ways that I want us to think through what does it mean to repent is we're going to be focusing on our dining room tables. So I don't know if you even have a dining room table, but I want us to link for the sake of this journey, this understanding of me to we, extending our dining room tables, and as kind of a practical, symbolic picture of repentance, we're going to be talking about dining room tables. To extend our dining room table means to extend it in function so that our dining room tables, we don't just see it as a place for food. We learn to see it as a place for fellowship, for friendship, for community building. And I want us to, to understand that to extend our dining room tables is also to extend it in number-wise. So it's not always just you and your family around the table, but actually, Lord, 
as an offering to you, as a form of worship to you, could I extend the number of places around the dining room table to include more? The goal of this journey is that all of us would literally dedicate our dining room tables to Jesus as an act of worship. And we're going to explain what that means. To be used in His service. Imagine if you dedicated your dining room table to the Lord, that at least one meal a week, Lord, I want this table to be building we, and not just me and us and my family. To see our dining room tables as a practical spiritual symbol of growth. Now, we were talking about this as elders, and uh, I realized, hey, I wanna, we as a family have to go and work on our dining room table because it needs work. We haven't even got one matching chair. They all just... And, and, but then Chaz and Grace, many of you know them, Chaz often preaches, they've really got to repent because they don't even have a dining room table. They had one and it was stolen. Literally, they put it on the balcony outside and then they came back and their whole dining room table was stolen. So they thought, well, cook, now we're going to have to either buy one, make one, they need. But here's what I thought. In some ways for me, that's a spiritual picture. Because I wonder in how many of our lives and families, your dining room table has been stolen. So many families nowadays, they never even sit around a table, even as a family. The TV or the different times, there's never even that sense at a family level of gathering around a dining room table. Like Jesus gathered with his disciples day after day. As a church, I'm calling us to repentance. To see that this is not just a practical food thing. This is a fellowship community thing that Jesus modeled and we need to grow in. And so we're going to be looking, and I know I'm running out of time, so I won't really get into depth today, but we're going to be studying the book of Luke together. And one of the reasons is Luke was an amazing guy. He was a doctor, but the thing that I probably love most about Luke was that he was a food lover. And I know that he was a food lover because in all the other gospels, there's maybe three or four accounts of Jesus having a meal with someone, but with Luke, 10. 10 times in his gospel, he spoke about Jesus having meals with different people. And these different meals reflect how central a dining room table was to Jesus' ministry. And I believe we can learn so much from that. And so let me just give you an example. Meal number one, our dining room tables, I believe, can and should become tables of evangelism. In other words, having people around our tables who don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the right, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want you to know two things here. One, Jesus loved having meals at other people's houses. He always said yes. Seemed whenever someone invited Jesus for lunch, he was there. And sometimes he invited himself to lunch. So we, in fact, I remember up in Midrand days before we planted the church here, there was this guy at fellowship after church. He would literally walk around family to family. What are you guys having for lunch today? Are you going out? No, no problem. What are you guys having? Mac and cheese? Nah, that's kind of Monday meal. What are you guys having? 
You're having a roast. Hey, any chance I could maybe come and join you guys? And, and he would unashamedly go family to family until he found the best Sunday lunch and he would go there. Honestly, it's biblical, so I couldn't even fault him on that. Jesus loved having meals with different people. I bet you if Jesus had his own home, he would always be sitting with different people around his dining room table. So much of his ministry and discipleship happened around the dining room table. But notice how Jesus loved having meals with people who were not yet followers of Jesus. I mean, Jesus ate with the kind of people that the religious people said, what? How could you have them in your house? Do you know they do this and this and this? They are this and this and this. Jesus, I don't care. This is why I'm here. And getting people around the table is the best place for them to feel loved and welcomed and ministered to. So here's the practical challenge. Two things I want us to take away as a challenge today. Number one, we church need to learn to banquet. Now, what am I talking about? Well, in Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus said to his host, he was at a meal, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brother or sister or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, say when. But when you give a banquet. Notice it doesn't say if you give a banquet. It says when. When last did you give a banquet? No, I mean, that's what challenged me when I read that. I suddenly realized it's not a, hey, if you give a banquet, no, it's when. Jesus almost expected it. This is normal part of life. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. A banquet. What is a banquet? Well, let's do a little bit of Greek just because this word banquet is dochi or doshe. Or I don't know. Don't know what it means. Well, it means banquet. But what I found fascinating is that word for banquet comes from the word, yeah, let me say this one better, deshomai. <laughs> that word means to welcome. To welcome, to receive, and to accept. So the word banquet is built on the word welcome. Now, how do you turn a meal into a banquet? It's not the food that has to get better. It's the, it's the welcome. A banquet is a meal built around a spirit of welcome. So sometimes we think, oh, I'm not the banquet type. We only kind of like two-minute noodles type of people. That's fine. It's not about the food that makes a banquet. It's about the heart of welcome that makes a banquet. And to learn to banquet church means part of our dedicating our dining room tables to the Lord is not hiding behind the, oh, I can't afford to. No, no, you can afford to raise the welcome, to raise that sense of it is so good to have you around our table together. Second thing I want us to, uh, I was just reflecting. I had the privilege of being at two banquets this last week. Uh, Some of you will remember my tall friend, Bruce, McAlpine and his wife, they both turned 50 this year. And so he decided for his birthday, since all of us or so many of his mates were up in Joburg, he invited us all to dinner at this beautiful restaurant. And uh, there were about 25 of us sitting around a table. We had this amazing meal together. They'd run out of pudding at the restaurant. So he says, well, let's go to the ice cream parlor next door. And we'd, like, it was 9 o'clock at night, so we had the whole ice cream parlor to ourselves. And at this ice cream parlor... He said, we've got a birthday tradition where whoever's birthday is, everyone else just speaks words of life over them. And to sit together 
and just hear person after person speaking life and gratitude over some. It was an incredible meal. It was a banquet, whether it's ribs that I had here or ice cream that you had there. It's not actually the food. It's that beautiful sense of welcome. Second big challenge is to learn to turn our dining room tables into a table of evangelism. The disciple, I mean, the Pharisees were disgusted, but Jesus says, this is the very reason that I do what I do. And here's my question and my challenge. When last did you have non-believers invited just to come and meal together with them? And for me, this is a big challenge. And in fact, I remember years ago, Kate and I, we, we invited our neighbors and we said, uh, come along for dinner. And then they arrived and horror number one, they brought a bottle of wine. Now, I know some of you are looking to be funny. Here's what was horrific. We didn't even have a corkscrew. They had to go back to their house to get a corkscrew to open their bottle of wine. Horror number two, yo, do we even have wine glasses? And we realized, I think we do, because you know at school, if we reunion, you get a little glass or whatever. It hasn't been used in 15 years, so we had to wash them and move the... T- we just realized we're so unprepared to have... I mean, as pastors, we've normally got people around our table, but it's normally church people. Actually, Lord God, we've lost something that you modeled so well. Are you comfortable to have people who don't yet know Jesus around your banqueting table to make them feel welcome and loved and accepted? We often joke that to be part of an apostolic church means you need to have your passport. Don't say you're part of an apostolic church and you haven't been to home affairs to get your passport. How can we go into all of the world if you can't even get into Swaziland? So I'm going to add to that as well. To be an apostolic people, we need a passport and a corkscrew. Because we need to be comfortable. Now, I'm just saying that some of you probably enjoy your wine over meals, and I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about for Kate and I, that was a challenge. We were not prepared for people who weren't just like us. Let me land. I want you to imagine if more people got saved around dining room tables than church services. Imagine. So much of the salvation that we see, just like Zacchaeus, it was around a dining room table because Jesus extended his dining room table and made it a place of banqueting and not just eating food. Most people see a church building as the gathering point of Christianity. It's true. That's why COVID, oh, so many, many churches even closed because now we can't have our main gathering. What if the main gathering, in the Old Testament, the main gathering was at the temple? What if in the New Testament, the main gathering was actually dining room tables? I want to ask you, will you dedicate your dining room table to the Lord? Will you dedicate, imagine it was one meal a week where you wanted your dining room table to be surrounded by others, members of the church, people who are not yet following Jesus, ideally both. Will you accept today's challenge to invite people who are not yet followers of Jesus to come and eat around your table? Church, I want to challenge you and I want to commission you. Let's respond to God's word. We've got a peck of salt to eat together. Let's extend our dining room tables and think we and not just me. Amen? Why don't you stand with me, please? Mm. 
Heavenly Father, as we stand in your presence this morning, we want to adjust our lives once again to a greater revelation of Jesus. And Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us a revelation this morning that the gospel breaks the me and introduces us to a we. And Lord God, we live in a humanistic, me-centered, self-absorbed society, and yet you've called us to be different. And Father, we want to bring before you our thinking, our hearts, our attitude. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now, you would be putting your finger on our hearts. (coughs) Excuse me. Friends, if that's you, if you honestly, and by the Holy Spirit, I pray that he would help you to be honest with yourself. If you've been trapped in me thinking, it's about me and my convenience, my comfort, meanness. Lord God, we pray that you would forgive us of our sin and smash that thinking in Jesus' name. We declare we have been born again into a we, into a covenant people where we connected together And Lord God, as a practical response this morning, we want to pray over our dining room tables. And I truly, friends, maybe you sit around the kitchen table. It's not the table and it's not the the food. It's the banqueting heart of welcome. It's seeing our dining room tables as something spiritual and not just something physical. Jesus, so much of your ministry was around a table having meals. Father, I pray that you would give us this heart, give us this revelation. We want to dedicate our dining room tables to you. At a family level, we want to honor that time. We want to see the sacredness of our meals together. Father, as a community building tool, we want people from the church, we want to build friendships in the church. We want to get people around our table to enjoy fellowship and make them feel welcome. Father, at an evangelism level, we want to invite neighbors, colleagues to come and eat around our table to make them feel welcomed and loved. Help us to use our dining room tables as a spiritual tool. Father, give us this grace, I pray. Help us to walk this out in repentance. Help us to find the grace to discover this new tool of spiritual growth in our lives. We dedicate it to you for your glory and for your name. And so, Father, as we go, thank you that your gracious hand is upon us. Thank you, Lord God, that you want to extend your mighty hand through us, even around our tables. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people sing, amen. Just as we go, I want to remind you, Jesus said in the book of Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. And if any of you are prepared to open your heart, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Salvation is an invitation to fellowship with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ, you've never stepped into fellowship, a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. We're gonna be praying for some folk and I would love to pray for you. If you're sick in any way and you've got faith for it this morning, we would love to pray for you as well.